At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show KB industry. I'm joined uh, this week, as with every week, with my beautiful co-host and ARBA Standards Committee Chairman, Chair, excuse me, Bryony Smith from Kansas. Bryony, how are you doing? I'm doing well. We are actually, um, we've just finished our club's show in Kansas. It's a little nostalgic for me at the Butler County Fairgrounds where I showed my first rabbit. So it's uh, warming up a little bit, but life is good. It's so fun to to like retouch with your roots, I'm sure, right? When you get to show rabbits in your own, in your own backyard where, you, where it all began. It is. Yeah. I very vividly remember the first rabbit show we attended before we had any um, show rabbits, any pedigreed, you know, pure breed ARBA show rabbits was a night show in that same location. And the club has since decided to make it an afternoon show, which, oh, you know, it's okay. Um, I, you know, my two favorite things to do in the weekend are sleep till noon and go to rabbit shows. So it was nice <laughs> when I could combine those. Um, but it's a regular day show now. Um, but yeah, it is. It's It's really nostalgic just to be in that place where kind of my love for rabbits began. I showed my very first rabbit down at the little rabbit barn at the county fairgrounds there. So yeah, it's nice. So cool. And I, I mean, I grew up in the East coast where we had night shows too. Um, you know, it was always in the summertime <laughs> when I moved West, I'm like, gosh, it's a lot hotter out there. I expected a lot more night shows. I don't think I've ever been to a night show out here. It's kind of funny. And it's a lot hotter here, but those night shows are, are a blast, especially if you're, you're like you and me, like we, we like our, we like, we don't really do mornings if we can avoid it, you know, but <laughs> all nighters, let's, you know, give it to us. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There used to be one too, um, down in Oklahoma in a town called El Reno that I went to back in the mid nineties. Um, it was definitely more of a thing then than it is now. Yeah. It's kind of weird. I mean, some of the night shows have come back like for new year's Eve type, type events. And then that makes sense of course, because you're doing the countdown and it's midnight, but, uh, but it's also like frigidly cold. So those summer shows were always fun at night. They were. Yeah. So I just got back from uh, Rabbit Breeders Anonymous. I got to do my first Rabbit Breeders Anonymous show, uh, judging this past weekend in Minnesota. And such a great crew up there. We've talked about them a lot on this podcast um, with Jason Karwaski and his his crew, including Tiffany Wayne uh, from the Standards Committee and a great group of dedicated people that, you know, hell or high water. They are putting on rabbit shows and they do such a great job. So it was really exciting. And I had a four-hour layover in Phoenix, which is like, okay, what are you going to do in four hours? Well, one of my best friends, you know, Kevin Stanford is an ARBA judge. He lives there and picked me up for lunch and we hung out for a little while. So it's a great way to get over some of those long layovers <laughs> when you're when you're traveling. And some of those judges like like you too, you know, like, hey, sometimes you, you get those opportunities to, to meet up with your rabbit friends on the road or in the sky when you're traveling. So it was a great weekend. 
Yeah, it is. I remember um, a trip to West Coast Classic a couple years ago. I had a four or five hour layover in Las Vegas and I got out, went down to the strip, had a cocktail and went shopping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. I love that. Um, so we've had some feedback from our listeners and we want to thank everyone that's, that's sent them in via email and, or, you know, approached you or, or me at a rabbit show. Um, I've got one to share. and I believe you do too. Uh, that came to our email address. It came from uh, Stephen Guti and he says, love the podcast. I am new to rabbits. My wife showed mini racks for six years or for years as a youth. Uh, and then a few in open and our six year old is now hooked and has been, to uh, three weekends of shows and she got her first best in show last month. The podcast has taught me a lot and look forward to hearing so much more. Thank you all. So thanks Stephen for that great comment and um, reminder everyone that you can email us your comments, uh, suggestions, at podcast best in show at gmail.com. And it's spelled out just like that podcast best in show at gmail.com. And we'd love to read your comment on, uh, on one of our episodes. So uh, Brian, I believe you've got one as well, huh? Yes, I got a message from Taylor Ahrens in Nebraska. She said, I'd like to take a minute to say I'm so thankful you and Alan are doing this podcast. And secondly, I'd like to say thank you for having Dr. Chris Hayhow as a recent guest. His advice really helped me sit back and think of ways I can improve my barn ventilation and other practices. So a big, huge thank you. I love that. Yeah, it means a lot to know that you know, the advice that our guests give helps people do practical and immediate things to improve their herds. Absolutely. I mean, that was our aim from the beginning was to share great information and bring people together. And you and I both know we would not be here. We would not be doing this years later if we didn't have great mentors sharing good information with us for absolutely for free, you know, just because, you know, other people cared. For the love of the hobby. Yes, absolutely. So uh, thanks uh, to both those people for sending those comments. Again, you can email us, podcastbestinshow at gmail.com, and we'll read your comments uh, on one of our future episodes. So, Bryony, super pumped about this episode because we get to talk about one of our favorite subjects, which is, of course, the ARBA convention, which is coming back, and it's going to be in Louisville later this year. So we're going to dedicate this podcast to a lot of the convention stuff, which our special guest will, of course, take up most of that time talking about the upcoming convention. But... In the meantime, uh, I decided to pick uh, 2008 for our This Time In, so a little flashback. Um, We picked 2008 because that was the last time we all were in Louisville, Kentucky for the ARBA convention. So going through some some old DRs, I bumped into the May-June 2008 issue of Domestic Rabbits magazine. And on the front cover, uh, it was a beautiful front cover, by the way. It was a Lynx Mini Rex in a garden of peonies i believe peonies i'm not really up on my flowers and it was painted by of course the very talented late uh, linda thompson um and it was a big issue by the way it had 88 pages and lots of stuff in it because it was the may june issue which we all know is dedicated annually to the upcoming arba election so there were a lot of candidate profiles in this one but uh in the in the beginning of that uh issue of dr from May, June of 2008, we have ARBA president, Dr. Chris Hayhoe, of course, our current president and last guest uh, for two issues or two episodes. Um, He gives an excellent president's report as always. But in that 2008 um, issue, I'm going to read his opening column because it relates back to some things that he said last week, which are still ongoing. So he says, in 2004, the U.S. Congress approved the minor use, minor species, the MUMS coalition bill. The goal of the MUMS bill was to improve access to therapeutic medications and to help streamline the drug approval process, which will increase availability of medications to treat rabbits, cavies, 
and other minor species. If we remember last week, he mentioned tilapia as another minor species. So, you know, you know, kind of animal species that are not, you know, consumed by the average consumer, right? They're, they're a little bit smaller, but still have you know, an economic uh, potential. Um, he goes on to say the potential benefit of the passage of this bill to the ARBA and to the rabbit and cave enthusiasts is unlimited. Previously, I have met with the representatives from the MUMS group and the FDA several times. Recently, this is in 2008, I was invited to attend a meeting in April 2008 at FDA with representatives from FDA's MUMS group and other interested parties. The purpose of the meeting is to discuss therapeutic products needed by rabbit and cave enthusiasts to maintain the health and productivity of their animals and the procedure to help move activities ahead in a positive manner. Uh, Dr. Chris Hayhoe concludes with saying, I think you will all agree that even though progress has been slow at times, the future availability of expanded number of therapeutic medications to treat conditions in rabbits and cavies is exciting. And he touched on that quite a bit last week and this, the strides that he's made um, and helped the ARBA make in getting us you know, closer to those uh, government agencies, which make the overall decisions on things like drugs and therapeutics, vaccinations, whether it's FDA or USDA. So it was interesting that he was reflecting on that back then, um, what, 13 years ago, and uh, talked about it still as an active goal of his as our ARBA president. So uh, thumbing through this issue, uh, you'll love this, Brian, because of course you are the Standards Committee chairman today. But back then, our Standards Committee chair was Mike Avising. And on page 22, he uh, it's, a, it's actually a pretty big Standards Committee report. It goes over a bunch of Varieties that are coming up for presentation, including sable mini racks, broken satin angora, which now are recognized, uh, chinchilla mini satins, also now recognized, Himalayan mini satins, opal mini satins, red mini satins, and, and a whole bunch more. I mean, it was like the mini satin craze. But he brings up um, a little part of his column. It's called judging questions. So he got an inquiry from someone that probably emailed him and was, was questioning something. So, and it's about dwarf hotos, which we talked about in the past. So I thought I'd read uh, from that judging question from the Standards Committee report from Mike Avising in 2008. He says, uh, three judging issues have come up recently. The first concerns dwarf hotos with chocolate eye bands. Dwarf hotos with black and chocolate eye bands are to be judged together. They are not supposed to be sorted or judged by variety. Some of the confusion is created by computer programs that print labels that can be stuck on comment cards. Those labels are generated from pedigrees, so they delineate the color on the label. So just because of the comment card saying chocolate under the variety, while others say black, it doesn't mean that they're to be judged separately. Judge them together. And that's still somewhat debated today because we don't see, we've talked about this, we don't see a lot of chocolate door photos, right? We don't always see a lot of them. Um, but actually, I've seen them pick up a bit in Kansas recently. You mentioned that. This is so cool. And so maybe that question will come up again. It's like, hey, chocolate door photos, yeah, they're recognized, but where are we supposed to, are we supposed to make them their own variety when we judge? No, they're supposed to be in with the blacks. And of course, now what? Blues. Yeah. Um, and it is, um, especially if the eye bands are very thin and the lighting is not very good in the showroom, it is still a little bit difficult to it's tell hard. color. I agree. Totally um, agree with you. Yeah. If the eye bands are, are, you know, the required thickness, then it's much easier. But again, you see some rabbits have very thin eye bands and I would hate to be the one to have to decide where it goes <laughs> in a showroom in low light. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. Like, I mean, some breeds of rabbits have really rich chocolate color. Like I think of Dutch and Havana's. And when you see a really richly colored Dutch or Havana in chocolate, that's prime and pristine has a really lustrous flyback coat. Um, you Sometimes I think they're black at first and then you get closer. Whoa, no, that's just really deep, rich chocolate. Right. So put that yeah. in a very thin eye band and good luck. 
<laughs> so, Indeed. Thankfully, they're all judged together. Um, and in Dr. Hayhouse President's uh, article from 2008, he concludes his article by wishing happy birthday to Oren Reynolds, 102 years old, and Harry Rice, 90. So those guys, uh, those those late icons of our industry were still around uh, back then. And Oren, gosh, 102, I can't imagine. Rabbits kept, kept him young, I'm sure. <laughs> so maybe we'll be around a little longer too. Um, page 38 of this DR was dedicated to the upcoming ARB convention, which I just mentioned was in Louisville, Kentucky. That was the last time we were all in Louisville. And that was the 85th ARBA convention. Uh, those dates were October 26th through 30th, 2008. Um, just some interesting tidbits from that article from the convention hosts in that issue of Domestic Rabbits. Uh, the Executive West Hotel was the headquarters stationed just across the road from the fairgrounds. So it was boasted as a very convenient hotel. And I believe that hotel now is the Crown Plaza. I know that because I stay there when I am working on the the Sheep Committee at the North American International Livestock Show every fall, and I stayed there last year, so it's the Crown Plaza. Uh, the committee also boasted about uh, new and exciting merchandise ideas, one of which being a car flag with the convention logo, and it was aimed that um, you know convention goers would would buy these car flags and hang them on their cars as they drove near or far from the convention, so that you know you could bump into others passing along the way. Uh, have you ever, Brian, uh, driven to a convention and, and clearly seen other rabbit people on their way to the convention? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> sometimes you see carriers um, yep. like in, through the windows or you see rabbit stickers like ARBA logos. Um, I know I, last time we were in Indy, I couldn't figure out where I, you know, I forgot the turn in, you know, it, was, it had been a long drive. I'm like, where exactly which, you know, entrance do I use here? And I spotted like a 20 year old van with an ARBA sticker. I'm like, <laughs> that's what I need to follow. <laughs> follow that one. Exactly. Follow that in the yep. trail of shavings. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, also in the, that, uh, convention article in that issue of DR, uh, the, um, the author goes on to talk about convention tours and it revolved around the international museum of the horse where you could see 40 different breeds of horses. And I'm sure that museum is still open today. And, you know, if you're, if you've been at a Kentucky, you know, that the bluegrass Strait is known for their horses. So another trip that was, um, outlined was and encouraged was a trip to the historic Churchill Downs home of, of course, to the famous Kentucky Derby. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, this this DR was a thick one, like 88 pages and a lot of stuff in it. Well, that's because we had a big election coming up that year. Um, there were candidate profiles for ARB president. And in 2008, Dr. Chris Hayhow was running against Cindy Wickheiser for president. Uh, for vice president, we had two... We had two people going for that position, and that was including Bruce Ormsby and Eric Stewart, believe it or not. They were both running for ARBA vice president. That was before Eric was our executive director. Um, there was only one contested district election, and that was in District 8. Terry Fender, Ron Mock, and Bill Patrick were the contenders in that election. Um, and one last thing from this DR, because it was such a good one, I couldn't put it down. I was reading all those campaign um, profiles in the DR. They're always very interesting to see, you know, what, what they think the current issues are in the, in the DR. And of course I love to find out a little bit more about them personally. And, you know, these guys are, and, and women that are, that are going to dedicate or hopefully dedicate the next two years of their, of their existence to the ARBA. I was reading uh, Bruce Ormsby's um, campaign profile uh, again for VP and he talks about conventions. So that's why I decided to read this little snippet from his 2008 campaign profile. He says, um, how far out should bids be allowed for ARBA conventions? There needs to be a way to accommodate each state's needs so that each of the 50 states has the option of hosting a convention. We are finding the larger facilities are booking events farther and farther out. Some states are finding it difficult to get openings less than four years ahead. I would appreciate your thoughts. 
on this and other matters. And I bring that up because we're going to talk about in our education segment today, um, how to host a convention, which is a really big job. So it was kind of funny that uh, he brings that up in there and, and about the bidding process, which we'll talk about later uh, on in this episode. So Bryony, what was happening in 2008 in the rest of the world? Well, the big thing in 2008, of course, and what we still talk about to this day was the Great Recession and the subprime mortgage crisis. But there were a few other things going on, too. Um, That was a presidential campaign year. Um, We had two-term President George W. Bush going out of office, and so the field was wide open. In January of 2008, um, a candidate from Illinois named Barack Obama actually came to my hometown of El Dorado, Kansas, on a campaign stop. I think there's a photo of you on Facebook with him. There is. Um, <laughs> yeah, he came to my was hometown. Um, yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was at the uh, gymnasium at Butler Community College. Cool. So I wanted to go see that because I thought, you know, that's really cool. I mean, who comes to to El Dorado, Kansas? Um, actually, his grandparents had lived there for a while, so he had some connections there. Um, it was 19 degrees. I remember snow and ice were coming out of the sky, and I stood outside for an hour. I was a little bit, you know, behind in line. There were, you know, probably about a thousand people ahead of me. Um, And I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to get a great seat. But since the weather was so bad, the way the gymnasium is built there is the ground level is like kind of the balcony and the gym is sunken. So since the weather was so bad, they opened up the ground level and let the first people that were in line in or open up the balcony. Those, Those first people were in line actually were up in kind of the nosebleed seats. And then once they had things done on the ground, you know, all the security, setting up all the television cameras and everything, they let the next group into the floor level. And I was in that group. I was with um, some professors there. I ended up getting separated from all but one of them. And we got really close to the stage. With, you know, this is cool. It's, you know, CNN is here. All these news stations are here. Um, the Secret Service is there. So I, you know, was sitting there picking ice chunks out of my hair. <laughs> and I stood up and folded my coat to sit sit on it because we were on like these wooden benches. They were hard. And I figured we were going to be there for a while. And I kind of got someone on the floor like pointed at me and they were organizers. And they came up to us and they said, do you want to sit on stage? Wow. And we're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and we, you know, we realized that they, they do select um, the onstage audiences. They want a, a representation of, you know, everybody there. And they had several black people from the Wichita area, um, a um, state senator, a um, local pastor, some business leaders um, to show support. And they were actually looking for um, some people to kind of balance that out. So I ended up sitting on the very end row and a lady I didn't, you know, recognize, I didn't know um, what her title was. She said, hey, you need to get in the middle here. We need some diversity, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. So I ended up um, sitting right behind Barack Obama for a campaign speech and I was on national TV for months. I kept getting messages from rabbit people saying, I'm in the airport and I saw you on TV. That's Um, so awesome. Are you sure it wasn't because you had less ice chunks in your hair? Come on. I mean, you picked uh, them all out, so... Well, I think the bright red helped. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> bright flaming red. Um, but but yeah, so that was an interesting little thing. And um, actually, El Dorado, Kansas is where our show is this weekend. And yes, where it I, is. Yes, where we're having our interview with Gordon Williams. Anyway, um, in March of that year, this is kind of a government-centered year, um, the country of Bhutan in Asia held its first ever elections, transferring from an absolute monarchy to a multi-party democracy. So we still had absolute monarchies in 2008, which is kind of crazy. Yes, it is to think about. 
And actually, their king is young, and there was a website, hottestheadsofstate.com. He was number three. <laughs> I have to check that out. Right after Justin Trudeau. Oh. <laughs> in May of that year, um, Nepal, also a country in Asia, abolished its 240-year-old monarchy and turned its kingdom into a republic. Also that month, NASA's Phoenix spacecraft became the first to land on the northern polar region of Mars. In the summer of that year, we were all talking about the Olympic Games in Beijing, China. China won the most gold medals. Um, do you remember the age controversy over the gymnasts? Mm, no. Oh, there was a big controversy because people thought that some of China's gymnasts did not look to be the minimum age to compete, um, which I believe is 16. And the government swore they were. A lot of people just weren't sure. Um, but the other big news story was that Michael Phelps earned eight gold medals to beat Mark Spitz's record of seven gold medals. I remember that. That was a big deal. Yes, yes. And it like the whole build up to everything. I've actually seen Michael Phelps in person, too, although I did not get to meet him. Mm, too bad. <laughs> Yeah, at a um, at a conference. At the same conference, a couple years later, I saw Barack Obama again. And crazy thing, again, I was there kind of late. I was in the back of the line. I'm like, you know what? I've seen Barack Obama. It's cool. I don't have to be there first thing in the morning. It's a huge rush of people. Same thing happened. The line broke right in front of me. I got ushered up the front. And here I am, like, you know, second row back from Barack Obama. I, again, I guess that's my magic. If Barack Obama's around, I'll be getting close. You'll be going. <laughs> I'll be going. <laughs> and um, on CNN. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for everyone to see. Um, in September of that year, Google Chrome was released. Wow. And the Android platform was released. Imagine life without those two things. I have never owned an Android, so I, I can still imagine it. But Google yeah. Chrome, like, I, <laughs> that's how I do podcasts on, on Google Chrome. So totally. Yeah, same here. That's my, my browser I use. Your go-to. Um, in October, Spotify was launched, a platform that we do use. Absolutely. Um, in December... Some remains found in Russia in 1991 were formally identified as Tsar Nicholas II by DNA. And Bitcoin was also invented in 2008. Crazy, because I don't think I've heard of Bitcoin until last year. But <laughs> yeah. it took a long time to be the kickoff for the, us regular people. Unless you talk to Joe Kim. Joe Kim is <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> You're totally right. So um, the top songs from 2008. Number one was Low by Flo Rida featuring T-Pain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, rounding out the top five, Bleeding Love by Leona Lewis, No One by Alicia Keys, Lollipop by Lil Wayne, Apologize by Timbaland, A Big Year for Hip Hop. Um, number seven was Love Song by Sarah Bareilles, one I like because it's not actually a love song, of course. Um, she's kind of famous <laughs> for her ballads. I'm surprised you're uh, even, she's on your they're periphery. Like, they're snarky ballads. <laughs> I like snarky ballads. <laughs> I can see that. But speaking of things I like, I would like to go to Churchill Downs sometimes because I don't get emotional over songs, but I get really emotional watching Secretariat videos. Like, if you uh, want to make me cry, show me a video of Secretariat in the Triple Crown every time. Uh, do you think you're going to be able to break away this year uh, in Louisville to see Churchill Downs? You know, I I kind of don't think so, but I'd like <laughs> <Boy>. to. <laughs> it's always our motive to go and like do things outside of the convention room, but... Let's face it. We never get out of the convention room. It's just convention or hotel, convention or hotel. Yeah. People are like, so what did you see in Kentucky? And be like, a whole bunch of rabbits and a lot of friends. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was it. Which was, like, in the end, totally fine. 
one night we went out and had dinner in a place that wasn't the hotel. <laughs> we sat down. It wasn't from the concession stand. <laughs> yeah. So the top shows in 2008, we were well into um, reality TV then. The top three were actually reality shows. American Idol, Wednesday and Tuesday were one and two. Dancing with the Stars was number three. That was one that I was really surprised took off. When it first happened, I'm like, this is stupid. Nobody's going to watch it. But they do. It's still going on. I could never get into it. I, no. Uh-uh. No. Um, then, of course, kind of crime dramas. The next three are CSI, NCIS, The Mentalist. Number seven, Dancing with the Stars again, Sunday Night Football. Then into some dramas. Do you remember Desperate Housewives? Yeah, of course. How popular that was. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and Grey's Anatomy, which is oh, still yeah. on. Um, so that rounds out um, the top 10 shows in 2008. That's a busy year. It was. And we were in Louisville. We were in Louisville, yes. Just like we are going to be later on this year. I'm here with Gordon Williams, who is the general chair of the upcoming convention in Louisville, Kentucky. Gordon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Nice to be here. Um, The first thing I'll ask, the same thing we ask all of our guests, is tell us how you got started in rabbits and who were some of your mentors in the hobby. Well, actually, uh, we're doing rabbits because my daughter... Um, actually wanted to do horses in 4-H and we weren't set up for horses. So we, um, took a walk the year before we could get through the fair the year before we could, um, before she was old enough to have animals and we settled on rabbits and on my wife, Lynette and I's 10th anniversary, we drove three hours one way to pick up my daughter's first four Florida whites from Bruce and Tammy Ormsby. So that's, you know, four little white things have started us over 21 years ago, and we're still doing it. Um, some of my mentors, actually, Bruce uh, was a really good mentor, and um, Caleb Thomas, so, and and we only live about seven miles from each other, so Caleb has been a, a, a huge mentor as well. Um, two very fine judges and very fine individuals, uh, in the rabbit world. And I, I think the world of them, they're, they're wonderful people. Well, those are names that our listeners will have heard before as people who have really contributed a lot to the mentorship and the forward movement of this hobby and its members. So it has been uh, 13 years since the convention in Louisville. Alan and I were talking about how we can't believe it's been that long, but we know a lot of our listeners will not have been to a Louisville convention before. Can you tell us um, a little bit about the facility that you have there? Uh, the Kentucky uh, Exposition Center um, is a very is a really nice facility to host animal shows. They have the North American Livestock Show that comes in uh, every year, first part of November. So the building is, is a, very well equipped to handle animals. <clears throat> They've got uh, nice updated lighting. Um, ventilation systems have been updated. So it's, it's set up for animals and it's, it's wide open spaces, huge showroom. Um, we're going to be able to use Broadbent Arena for our best in show, which will have the end we're going to use. We're going to have over 1,700 seats available for best in show uh, viewing. So it's, we're excited. Yeah, it's a great venue. Um, for those of us who've been there before, it's very spacious. It's very open. And um, it's one of those rooms you just walk in and, and it's wall-to-wall rabbits, but it's wonderful. Yes, it is. 
So can you kind of walk us through um, what goes on in a typical convention and some of the main events on each day? Well, we will uh, open up the showroom for um, animals actually on Thursday the 21st at 6 p.m. for them to start showing up. People will start um, bringing their animals in, and they'll have like two and a half days. Once we open up at 6 p.m., we will be open 24 hours to accept animals up until um, I believe it's 3 p.m. on Saturday. We're going to close the entries then, and all the ear changes and, and any changes you have to make will be need to be done by 3 on Saturday. And then we will actually have our commercial judging beginning at 5 p.m. on Saturday, the 23rd in, in Broadbent Arena. Um, before that, on Saturday, we will have our opening ceremonies at 8 a.m. in the West Wing. Um, we will have... Uh, the judges um, for KV and Rabbit, we will have our judges' conferences on Saturday. Um, Sunday, the showroom opens at 6 a.m., and the judging will begin, uh, for open judging will begin at 8 a.m. Uh, 9 a.m., the judging will begin for the youth. Monday, the showroom will open again at 6. The judging will start at 7 to finish up. Any judging that still needs to be done. Our KV Best in Show will be at 1.30 on Monday, the 25th. Rabbit KV or Rabbit Best in Show will be at 3 p.m. Monday night at 7.30 is the ARBA banquet for the open. Tuesday, um, there will be um, you and your committee with the uh, standards committee will be busy. Um, that is the new breed and variety presentations. Um, and that night uh, at 6.30 is the big blowout convention for the youth that uh, will be at the Crown Plaza. That is a huge banquet and is a lot of fun for the kids. Wednesday is the last day. The showroom will open at 6 a.m. And every, the showroom will close at noon and all rabbits and cavies must be out of their coops and out of the building is we have to get clean up and get ready for their next event. It never ceases to amaze me that the rabbits that we get in, in two and a half days, we get out in six hours. <laughs> yes, I know. It's uh, it's like, uh, forgive the terminology, but it's like rats, you know, getting off a sinking ship. <laughs> oh, no. I think most years I've been there, I've seen maybe a first-timer or a non-rabbit spouse. Someone just melts down that day and just can't handle it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's logistically, this can be a, a big challenge, but it, with everybody's help, it seems to get pulled off year after year after year. That it does. So the showroom opens two days before the actual opening ceremony of the convention. Um, can you tell us some reasons why people might want to come a little bit early and, and you know, be there before that first official day? That gives, that gives people a chance to take a, a little bit of time and explore the area that, that we're in. Uh, Louisville has places like Churchill Downs that you can go see. Uh, they have, I believe, the Muhammad Ali Museum. They have uh, caverns and, and places to go. They've got an, um, 
a cavern that's all underground that have, actually has a zip line. So there's a lot to do in Louisville and around the Louisville area that people will can take advantage of while they're there before the rabbits even hit the table. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we know a lot of people, especially families with kids, make this a family vacation and sometimes try to work some educational activities into the trip as well. Yes. So um, I know that you've been involved in several before, but can you kind of tell us um, how did the planning for this begin and how long has it taken for your group to put together the plans and pull this convention off? Well, considering we're still working on it. (laughs) (laughs) We've got faith in you. Um, Actually, it's been about two years that we've actually been putting together the plans to uh, put this together. It doesn't, obviously, uh, an event this size doesn't happen overnight. It takes months, many, many months to uh, get everything pulled off. Rabbit shows in general, there's always logistics that you have to worry about. But when you magnify the numbers, you know, you could be anywhere from 18,000 to 25, 26,000 animals. I mean, you never know, obviously, but um, the logistics of the whole thing actually just it can be overwhelming. Uh, the whole we I have a whole committee. I think there's 13 on the committee and everybody's doing a tremendous job and everybody's got their areas that they're working on and it takes everybody to help get this pull off and, and they're doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And some of you have been involved in conventions before. Is that correct? Oh yes. We, uh, even though this is the first convention that we are under the title crossroads rabbit and cavey shows, um, many of us have been involved in work, were involved clear back in 2005 with Hoosier Rabbit and KB shows and 2011 and 2017. So there are several of us that have been involved with a minimum of four conventions. And then a lot of us actually were part of helping with 2008. So there's a lot of experience in our committee. So can you tell us when a, a group or, you know, a few people in an area are maybe thinking about putting a convention together, how do you um, organize the group and recruit members um, to put your bid together and kind of make that initial push? You know, honestly, it comes down to passion for the hobby. Those who, uh, I mean, like I said, we I have about 13 individuals on the committee, but we actually have more that's willing to step up and help from even outside of our area. And everybody who is willing to be a part of the committee or help the committee all have a great passion for this hobby. And I personally, I think it just comes down to to passion. And it's not about, I've always looked at it as not about us. It's about us being able to put together the best convention that we can for the membership of the ARBA. And I think that's I think that's where we shine. I, I there are some wonderful groups across the country that put on tremendous conventions, and I just I I would put ours right there in that group. Yeah, I think we all would, and I think that's a little different than other livestock species where there are corporations or organizations that put on shows. All of our conventions, while it may be you know under a corporate umbrella, it's all of our members doing this for the rest of our members. It's all 
a volunteer labor of love. Yes, it is. It, it is a it is volunteer. One, it is volunteer. Capitalize that volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a true labor of love. I mean, if we didn't love what we did, uh, we wouldn't be doing it. And, you know, and I, before we get away from this, I want to say thank you to each and every sponsor, feed companies, vendors. Uh, it takes everybody to, to pull together uh, without sponsorships and the people who help us raise our rabbits as far as feed companies and cage dealers. We can't do this. So thank you to each and every one of them. Yes, absolutely. We have a lot of partners that donate um, time, money, effort, um, sponsorships to get these um, events going to sponsor some really nice awards for our winners who have put so much time and effort into, you know, raising animals that are competitive as this, this prestigious show. So, yes, absolutely. Now, during the show itself... Um, there are some opportunities for other members and exhibitors to volunteer and help. Is that correct? Yes, there is. There is always something to be doing. We have, um, we start on Monday the 18th of setting up coops. That'll take a full two and a half to three days just to set up coops, um, get cages marked, uh, put up coop cards, uh, put the pine shavings in. It's, it's very labor intensive. Um, if you've got a few extra hours or a, few, a extra day or two, show up and help. There's always clerical work to do. We have the night before the show or the afternoon before the show, all the coop car, all the comic cards have to be printed and they have to be separated and put into, you know, our groups and our, in all of our breeds. And it has to be ready to go out to the show tables the next day. Uh, there's, there's always something to do. We have people that need to man the check-in desk. Uh, like I said, for 24, you know, it'll be open 24 hours a day. Um, there's never, um, there's always something to do and something that needs to be done. So if you've got an extra hour, even just, even just an extra hour, that would be a huge help. Yeah. And um, who could someone contact or where could they go if they had some time and wanted to help? They can go to our website, um, Crossroads Rabbit and Cavey Shows, or onto our Facebook page. Uh, we actually have a, a social media person. Uh, they can send an email to them, and we can get them hooked up with uh, the appropriate people. Excellent. So um, we have, I'm sure, a lot of people who will be coming to their first convention or maybe have only been to a couple and missed last year's a little bit rusty what kind of advice would you have for a first-time convention attendee? Oh, that's a great question. Um, come willing to learn. I mean, this don't you, you don't have to come in and know it all. I mean, there's always someone there to be able to help you answer questions. Um, the, our committee is is committed to helping uh, each and every exhibitor, whether you're first timer or you've been there 50 years, there's always something that you may need information on. Don't be afraid to ask. Uh, we're willing to step up and help. Um, just come in, enjoy yourself, enjoy the surroundings. And even after, oh, I think this is my 12th or 13th convention, 
I still am in awe when I walk into that showroom and see all those cages full of rabbits and cavies. It's an amazing sight. Yes, it is. I think all of us who are long timers and who have a passion for that hobby still get that excitement and maybe that kind of tingle in the back of our neck every time we walk into a convention. So um, something that people ask sometimes that are a little newer to conventions, they get the catalog, they read the show rules, which I would recommend for everyone because they are a little bit different for convention. Um, Convention companies do adhere pretty strictly to those rules and there's really not much wiggle room. Can you kind of explain to us why it's a little more strict than a regular ARBA show? Well, it actually has to do, a lot of it has to do with the facility. Um, There are certain rules and regulations that are put forth to us from each facility that, that would be hosting a convention that they may not allow certain things uh, like straw for bedding. Um, We allow pine shavings, obviously, because you have to have something in, you know, the coop to help absorb um, the waste material that the animals put off, but straw will not be allowed. Um, So, yeah, it is advisable that you go through and read the show rules. And I mean, you don't have to have them memorized, but you should at least be familiar with them. Yes, those are very helpful when you're packing and preparing. Like you said, you know, you wouldn't want to pack a bale of straw or, um, you know, I know that there are rules about the size of tags or decorations that you can put on cages. You know, you don't want to spend a lot of time sewing curtains for your coops. Um, Right. Well, and. And a lot of that is actually, you know, is put forth by the ARBA. And we, that's, you know, we have to follow those rules. Each and every convention has to follow those rules. Um, and there, I like I said, outside of things that the ARBA has set aside or set forth, the, you know, rules and regulations, uh, once again, you have, you know, rules and regulations that have to be added to it from each convention site. So tell us a little bit about the, just the magnitude of work that goes into setting one of these conventions up before the exhibitors even show up. Uh, it's a good question. Um, and I was in 2017, I was a general chairman and we had the convention in Indianapolis. We had, I no less than 50 individuals help set up coops for two and a half days. It just is it is a huge undertaking, and that does not include anybody that was working in, in the clerical aspect of the convention as far as packing exhibitor packets and getting everything ready for the exhibitors when they walk in to check in. There, it's, it's, it's huge. We need all the help we can get. I mean, and well, I have a good group of people to help, but there's always room for more. Yes, there always is. Um, so your role is the general chair this year. Can you tell us a little bit about what that job entails and how it differs from the show superintendent positions? To be honest with you, my I look at my position as basically I want to find the people to put on the committee to put on that committee for the convention that are willing to step up and do a certain job. I've got somebody who is going to do all they're going to do is go around and make sure that feed is set out for the exhibitors every day. They're going to make sure all the areas that we're going to have feeds 
set that it's full and ready for the exhibitors. Going to have pine shavings placed around the showroom. Um, it just little things, the things you wouldn't think that would take much time or wouldn't be that important are actually very important because you don't want people having to search around to try to find feed or for their rabbits or cabies. Um, so it, my job is to find people that can and will do all the different jobs that re are required by a convention host. Um, the general superintendent, they're just going to, or the show superintendents for open or youth, they're just going to run the show. Um, so everybody has a title. Everybody that's on the committee has a title. And I've got somebody that's, that's going to be involved in just best in show. Everything at a convention is on such a larger scale than, you know, any other normal show. We don't have, you know, little fairies sitting out pallets of shavings or pallets of feed and, you know, sweeping up the aisles and things like that. All of this requires just a huge amount of manpower. Um, and I mean, I think, and I've been part of a convention committee before, but it's humbling to see people go through all of that work just to provide this experience for the association and for their fellow breeders and exhibitors. Thank you. So we, we appreciate your, your willingness to take this on. Um, unfortunately, there has been a little bit of discussion about um, RHD and, you know, things that have come out previously in Kentucky. Can you tell us um, how you guys are, who you're communicating with and how you're monitoring the situation as far as potential um, restrictions for RHD or COVID? Well, I have... Um Part of my committee, I do have an assistant general chairman, and he has been involved with uh, many conventions. Uh, it's Mr. Dave Freeman. He's also the treasurer of the ARBA. He is well connected with uh, those in Kentucky, in Louisville. Um, we actually have someone who has actually um, been in contact, in a constant contact with the uh, folks at Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. And we're in constant contact with them. If anything comes new that or any information that we would need to know, they are going to contact us and let us know. Um, at this point, we have a full green light, full speed ahead. Let's have a convention. Um, Louisville and the state of Kentucky wants the ARBA to have their convention in Louisville. They want us there. And at this point, there is nothing that's going to keep the convention from not happening. Um, we are, like I said, we are in constant contact with them and they have been very forthcoming and letting us know um, if things change, they, they have been able to, they've been on top of it. So I feel very confident in how things are progressing. Everything is trending in the right direction. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I don't think there's going to be anything keeping a lot of us from there, but it's, it's good to know. And, you know, to, to get confirmation that any news is going to come to you guys first. We're not going yeah. to just be surprised by something that somebody heard on, on a, you know, press release or something like that. We're going to hear it from the convention committee. And if, if, and this is a huge, if, if something ha would happen to change, you would hear it on our, you would see it on our Facebook page or on our website or even on the ARBA website. You would hear it from the Crossroads Rabbit and KB Shows Committee, and you will be fully aware of what's going to happen. 
Well, we know that you have kept us updated on all of the happenings and all the plans for convention. So, um, of course, we can follow your webpage. We can follow your Facebook page. And we'll give a little plugs for those here in just a bit. Um, but, yeah, these are these are the reliable sources for news and information about the convention. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what a judging day is like at a convention for some new exhibitors. They see that there's a show superintendent and then they're used to seeing that at an ARBA show. That's the person assigning breeds and kind of monitoring things, but they also see um, breed chairs and breed secretaries. Can you tell us a little bit how the breed clubs work to ensure that judging runs smoothly at the show? And it takes the breed clubs to make sure their breeds get on the table judge and back to the coops um, is not necessary for the uh, exhibitor to bring their own rabbit up. But what it's in mo- most important is that everybody pitch together in each breed to carry rabbits to the table, watch them be judged and then take them back to their coops when they're done being judged. Um, it It's a huge undertaking. You will find it can be a little bit intimidating or a little bit confusing but if you just watch what's going on and pitch in and help it will make things a whole lot smoother yes it does um and and that's another great place to volunteer i know that um they always they have runners to carry most of the rabbits up the table this is not a show where for the most part you're bringing your own animals to table, especially the breeds with larger numbers. Runners will be loading maybe the entire class and carriers and bringing them up. So um, if you insist on running your own rabbits, then they'll wonder where the rabbit went and go looking for it. Um, yes. But we there always will, need there volunteers. Will be tickets. There will be tickets with a coop number. That's the rabbit you need to go get from that coop, whether it's yours or not. Help out. Just go grab the rabbit that's in that coop and bring it to the table. Yes. And and you can do this for any breed. I know, um, well, the last year at Indy, I had something to do. So I ran some cows back to their group. I don't raise Californians. Um, but judges are really helped by having people to bring the animals to the table in a timely manner and also take them back to the coop after judging is completed and keep the table moving and clear of animals that have already placed and can go back. And I know, and, and i I can't argue with the fact that I know that people want to hear what the judge has to say. And I'm going to say it's not that it's not important, but it, to keep the show moving, especially when you have, you know, 1800 mini wrecks or whatever the number may be, you've got to get them on and off the table. So we, cause they're not the only breed that's going to use that table. Once they're done, we have another breed that steps right up behind that breed, you know, whoever's been on the table first to get their breed judged. So we've just got to keep things moving. Yes. Um, So the responsibility for the show superintendents at convention is, of course, assigning tables and times to the breeds, but really the, the, um, burden of running the show itself runs on, uh, falls on those breed club members shoulders. Yes, it does. So one of the things that is sometimes a little bit confusing or maybe even frustrating for exhibitors, 
um, young and old alike, is that there's sometimes some lines to get out of the show on checkout day because we go through a little bit more intense checkout process at convention than we do at other shows. Can you tell us a little bit about why we do that and some steps that exhibitors can take to ensure that they are taking home the right rabbits? With the sheer number of rabbits that go through the show and the fact that exhibitors don't necessarily carry their own rabbit back um, and there are runners, it does happen that occasionally it does happen that rabbits get put in the wrong coop. And it happened to me a few years ago, um, judging, or I was having helping with the satins, helping carry satins and one of my animals got put in somebody else's coop, and I didn't catch it right away. It took me a few hours, but when I finally went to go feed, I realized that's not my rabbit, and we had to go searching. So the, at the end of the day, you should always check your rabbit's ear number um, to make sure it is your rabbit that you're caring for or feeding or cleaning its coop, which is very important. Um, but we actually double check. We have to go through and check every ear number against your checkout sheet to make sure you are taking the rabbits you are responsible for, whether you've purchased them there, whether you've sold them there, or whether you took them and you're taking them home from there. We have to check to make sure that each and every rabbit and KB goes home with the appropriate individual. And it takes time. Yes, it does. I know that, you know, nobody really enjoys that, but it's good to have that extra assurance and know that you got the right rabbits. Um, I know something that's helpful for me every year, the night before we load up, I take out my checkout sheet, I mark off any rabbits I've sold, I make a list of any rabbits I've bought, put my, get all my um, sales slips together, fold it all up. So the next day I have a load up list because it's pandemonium that day. We're tired. We've had a full week at rabbit camp and it, it's easy to forget a rabbit. There are a lot of rabbits forgotten every year yes, um, or to maybe grab the rabbit that's, you know, next to yours, you know, you're, you're going for the right one, but you accidentally grab the wrong one. So I think um, you're right that that's the most important thing to do. Just at every point, check your numbers, check your numbers, check your numbers. And if you've bought rabbits or sold rabbits, especially if you've bought rabbits, when the showroom opens on Wednesday at 6 a.m., you should be there and loading up the rabbits that you've bought. And if you need to be meeting with the person who you bought them from, get all the paperwork done uh, at that point. Get to get those rabbits you've bought before you load up the ones that you're taking home that, you're, that are yours. Um, help assure that you're getting the correct rabbits and that we don't have accidents happen and people grabbing the wrong things. And that's a great point about bot rabbits too, because I know a lot of people bring their own coops. They bring their own risers. And I know for me, when I'm going to load up my own rabbits, get ready to go home, tear down the things in cages, I do bring risers. It's annoying to have a bot rabbit still sitting in that coop when I'm trying to pack my equipment up and go home. So that's a courtesy to your seller too, to, to clear that cage as soon as you can. Exactly. And another thing you mentioned, um, maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit. Tell us why it's so important to routinely clean your cages. Ammonia. 
Plain <laughs> <laughs> simple ammonia. As well as these buildings are made for livestock. Um, anybody who has a, a decent sized rabbitry knows that stagnant air tends to hold ammonia very well. And it can get very ripe in these showrooms after, you know, you've got, let's say, 22, 23, 24,000 animals, and you don't have constant air moving. Even though we change the air, we're able to change the air. We don't have, you know, it's not like a smaller barn. You have, I mean, 700,000 square feet or whatever it is. And it's tough to get that air to change the appropriate number of times in a minute to keep the ammonia smell down. So you got to get rid of those dirty shavings. You put clean shavings in and do it on a daily basis. That helps and we'll dump everything in trash dumpsters and get it out of the building. And that will help, uh, help the breathing situation of everybody involved. Yes, both humans and rabbits. Um, and I know exactly. that the, ARBA, as the owners of most of the coops and equipment, have really put that emphasis on people who do use risers. A lot of us use risers because it keeps the animals out of the shavings. It keeps them a little bit cleaner. Um, but when they're on risers, they're not helping to clean their own coops. The animals that aren't on risers, they kick some shavings out. They kind of help clean that coop a little bit. When they're on the risers, they're just sitting there soaking those boards and leaching ammonia into the air. Um yes. So that's particularly important to clean daily if you're using risers. That's just a little plug from the association. There's often a note about that in your check-in packets. Yes. So can you tell us um, a little bit about, we'll back up a little bit, about the check-in process and what needs to be done on check-in day to make sure that all of your rabbits are ready to show? Well, there are, you will come to a check-in booth. You will have a check-in packet, which will have all of your entries that you have done online. Um, if you have not already done so, uh, you will take a black Sharpie marker and you will put the coop number in the right ear of each animal. So that's done because that way judges aren't looking at tattoos when they're judging, they're looking at coop numbers. Only if there's a question do they refer to the personal tattoo. So the coop number is actually the ID for that animal at the convention. And that has to be done before your rabbit hits the table or your KB. So that all has to be done. And then, and like I said, any ear number changes that you have to do have to be done prior to. And that do, is done on your paperwork. And then, obviously, you would if you had... Rabbit X in Coop 20, and you decided to use Rabbit Z, then you have to make the paperwork change and then put the appropriate uh, Coop number in Rabbit Z's ear on, you know, in the right ear and then, and then cage it and you're ready to go. And like all other shows, we do not make changes at the table, correct? No, we do not. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we're all excited to come to Louisville. I know that, you know, for most of us, we skipped a year and it really, it feels like not a right year if we haven't been to convention. You know, that's, it's a major part of the year for a lot of us. It's a vacation for a lot of us. Um, so I guess um, I one more question before we close with our, our standard closing question. But is there anything that you think that the convention committee wishes exhibitors knew 
about convention or anything that they, you know, that, that you wish the majority of folks would take into consideration when they plan and prepare? Come to the convention with an understanding that by the end of the week, I mean, those that are on the, that are on the committee have been there many days before you showed up. We are already tired before the convention even starts. We are there for you. Um, it, and I, and I understand if you've driven across the country, you've been on the road for 30 hours or whatever. Everybody's tired, but we're there for each other. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the camaraderie between the breeders. Uh, just come in, relax and have a good time. I think that's the perfect advice. <laughs> It's intense, but but yes, we're there ultimately to have a good time. This is a hobby. This is why we do this. this you're right. This is a hobby. So one a last hobby. It is the best hobby as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so the last question that we ask everyone is, can you describe or what would your perfect rabbit show be like? Or maybe what would your perfect convention be like? Um. My rabbit sitting up next to the to the trophy. <laughs> Actually, you know, um, I, I like well, the you, honesty. You want to be honest, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think I, that would be everybody's perfect answer. But obviously, only one person is going to go away extremely happy. But um, you know, just to have. An enjoyable week uh, with very little problems, and the problems are going to arise. I don't care what con- convention you've been a part of, or what. There is no perfect show. If there's an issue, if you have an issue, please find a committee member. Um, we will help uh, rectify any problems that may arise. That's what we're there for. Uh, just come in and enjoy yourself. And for, for me, a perfect show or a perfect convention would be one with no problems or very few problems. Let's put it that way. Yeah, there are always a few little glitches. Well, I, I like that. And, you know, like I said, I love the honesty. I think my perfect convention would be my rabbit up there next to the big trophy, too. Well, now um, only one of us can have the perfect convention. <laughs> yeah, only one of us will this year. But no, that's that's great advice. Um, you've given us a lot to think about. And I really like that you've emphasized um, these are our rabbit people. Always, you know, there will be problems. There will be, you know, things that we'll need help solving. But just remember to use some tact, use some empathy. You know, these are our, our, our folks or our rabbit family, if you want to think about it that way. Um, these are the people that are here to help us. And if we all work together, we're going to have a great show. We will have a great show. I have no doubt. No, and, uh, me either. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody at the convention. So am I. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you for all the work that you have put in and have yet to put in on bringing us a successful convention this year. Our annual family reunion resumed. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, that was a great interview, Bryony, with Gordon Williams. He, of course, is the chairman of the upcoming convention in Louisville. That's later this year, 2021. We're so excited to be back at the Airbnb convention, doing all the things we've already talked about, which is seeing our friends, seeing great rabbits, hanging out in the showroom, probably not doing much else, and uh, then maybe going to the hotel. Um, so I decided to uh, dedicate our education portion to uh, convention hosts and what it takes to put on a convention. And 
it's a lot bigger than a lot of us actually realize. And Brian and I both have been involved in convention organizations in the past and, and, and getting them off the ground and, and going, and they really become like a job. Like it's for a convention chairman, it's, it's a job. So Gordon is, he's a busy guy right now as well as the rest of his committee. But a lot of it falls onto that chairman position because he is, his name is right there on the top. So a great interview with him. And we're so excited to, to, to be there in Louisville. Um, so I decided to uh, go through this. Uh, it's called the official rules, guidelines, recommendations, and suggestions for the presentation of the ARBA national convention. And by the way, it's really thick. It's like 20 pages long. I'm not going to read everything, but you can find it on the ARBA website. If you're interested, if you're brave enough to put on a convention, which we desperately need more people and places uh, that are dedicated like like Gordon and his crew to put on these conventions. You can find this document uh, by visiting arbi.net, going to the member resources tab, uh, clicking on shows. And then finally, there's ARBA convention guidelines. So what I'm about to kind of summarize comes from that ARBA website uh, link, and you can pull it up the PDF as well. So in the beginning of this official rules, guidelines, recommendations, the uh, the letter starts off by saying hosting a national convention encom- encompasses responsibilities and ramica- ramifications that the majority of the members, local clubs, and other associations do not realize, which again, I just kind of said, um, unless they have been involved in such an event themselves. And like I said, this thing is really thick. Um, and it begins with uh, finances. You know, these things are expensive. And if you're a convention host, you don't really get a lot of income until you start getting entry fees. And of course, they're they're pretty expensive and you get a lot of rabbits coming in. So that's when the money comes in. But before that, if you're going to even think about putting on a convention, you've got to have some finances already established. So in the finances of this convention, when you're putting together your, your bid to, to do this, um, when placing the bid for a national convention, the organization group uh, should have thorough plans included in the bid describing how they intend to finance the initial expenditures as well as the entire convention. I'll get into some of those expenditures of early on ones in a second. Um, one of the first things that a, a group has to do when they decide that they're going to do a convention is to put forth or put together a bid, a formal, it's almost, it's like a three ring binder. It's really thick of, of everything outlined in this guideline that uh, that's covered that the Airbnb requires. If you're going to put out a convention, you've got to cover all these bases and then prove to the Airbnb two years in advance um, how you're going to actually pull it off. So um, in this bid, the procedure includes a detailed written bid mailed to the ARB office and officers, as well as directors, and at least done so 60 days prior to the opening date of the annual convention, which is two years out. So if you're going to bid for a convention, you've got to send this thing in two months before the upcoming convention where you'll present the bid. And that at that point, it's still two years from the actual convention date. So this thing is thought out years in advance. And this is not something you just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put together a convention bid and bring it to the Airbnb board at this convention and, and talk about it for next year. No, you've got to think about this like at least two and a half years out. Um, all bids are to be presented to the Airbnb officers and directors during a regular Airbnb board meeting session at the annual convention two years again in advance of that prospective um, convention. And there's a presentation committee that uh, like presents the bid and that committee exists of like three people or up to five and they go before the Airbnb board during that meeting and present this bid and then answer questions. And um, was it 2017? Uh, Laura Lee Irby and I presented the bid for the 2019 convention in Reno. So that was the first time I had to get before the Airbnb board and answer some questions. And we had, a, thankfully we had a great video from the, from the uh, Reno, um, what is that? The, the visitors bureau, probably bureau. I don't know. Um, that 
helped us to kind of outline what goes on in Reno and all the great things that were, that were about it. So all those things take place well in advance. One of the biggest things that a convention committee has to think about is cooping and an adequate number and style of coops is necessary in sponsoring a successful convention. The bid shall include the total number of coops available to the sponsoring organization, the location and owners of these coops, and the types and coops sizes and the numbers of each. Um, and a lot of those today are owned by the Airbnb, thank gosh, because um, we've put together such a bank over the years and we've got an amazing committee that uh, monitors those. So uh, you don't have to have a bank of your own coops available to put on a convention, but it certainly helps and it will cut down costs if they're at a local level. The facilities, that's another big one um, that a convention host has to think about and secure um, when they put together this bid process. So a show facilities for an Airbnb convention needs to be of ample size to accommodate the anticipated entry, booths, judging areas, and number of exhibitors and guests. A blueprint of the facility should be provided in the bid and presented to the Airbnb board at that at that meeting, including layout. The show facilities should be easily accessible for um, from hotels and motels used by the convention guests. There should be easy access to those driving to the convention, as well as public transport serving the facilities for those without transportation or maybe that are flying. So like, we're going to be really lucky this year in convention at in Louisville because the airport, the host hotel, they're right across the street from the showgrounds or the Kentucky State Fairgrounds where the convention is going to be held. So love those convenient conventions. I, I always reflect back to Wichita where the hotel was attached to the convention showroom. It just makes it so much more convenient because you don't have to travel and drive 20 minutes. It's just all right there, especially if you're a rabbit geek like Brian and I when you're pretty much living in the showroom and you want to get to bed it's a lot easier when it's just across the street. Um, back to those coops or sorry, the facility, it is suggested by the Airbnb that at least 150,000 square feet of building space be available um, to host a convention. That's a lot of space. So, I mean, it's one of the things I kind of roll my eyes when I hear when I'm traveling and people are like, oh, well, the Airbnb convention should be in Disney World. Okay, well, do they have a big enough space? And by the way, can we afford it? I mean, heck, I'd love to see the Airbnb convention on the moon, but <laughs> it's not going to happen. So space and 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 affordability really factor into this. It's not that easy for these hosts to find these facilities. And that's sometimes why why we move. Like when we were in Del Mar, we were there for three conventions um, in the past. And then ultimately, it just got too difficult. And we were within three buildings. And our group here, the California Rabbit and KV Show, CRCS, ultimately moved to Reno to the Reno Sparks Convention Center. It was made it a lot easier. The hotel was there. And of course, we had one big showroom. Everything is under one, one roof. And that always makes it very convenient. Other things to consider by a convention host when they're putting together this bid, um, lighting, ventilation, and also entries. So the the convention committee should determine ahead of time, like how many how many entries do you think you're going to come in and, and be here? Um, the Airbnb wants to know that because if you don't have enough space, Entries have to be limited. I haven't seen one of those conventions in a long time where the uh, the host venue didn't have enough room for everybody, but that's actually a real life uh, struggle for a convention committee. If they find a facility that's a little bit too small, they may have to, you know, kind of limit the number of animals that are, that are entered. By the way, that's not happening in Louisville, so don't, don't be afraid, but that's something that a convention host has to think about. Um, back to coops, the host corporation. So like I'll use us as an example at CRCS um, has to rent the entire compilation of coops owned by the Airbnb or have some kind of exemption from the Airbnb board before they do that or make that agreement. Um, the host club that's put putting on that convention shall pay $2 per hole. That's per cage. That's the permanent cooping during convention. So if you house your rabbits during the convention, um, which everyone does, uh, it's the, the host club has to pay $2 to the Airbnb per hole per cage 
Um, so when you wonder like, why are our convention entry fees so expensive? Well, consider that $2 of that has to go back to the ARBA uh, just to rent that coop for your rabbit to stay in or KV. Um, and then of course there are judging units. Those are the, the coops that we, that Brian and I and all the other judges judge on. Those also have to be rented from the ARBA and they are rented at a cost of $60 per for, per judging unit. And a judging unit only ex- only consists of eight holes uh, and a table. So it's not a lot of space. Um, you can see why conventions are so expensive to pull off. Um, when it comes to getting all of those coops there, as we know, the ARBA coops and convention equipment are housed in Indiana in a warehouse. But if you have a convention on the West Coast or you know somewhere much farther than that, they have to be shipped. And 67% of all shipping costs for those coops and judging equipments have to be, has to be covered by the host club, which is a lot. I mean, they're, they're, they're trucked out in semis and everyone knows how expensive fuel is. You can imagine what a semi goes through to get these really heavy, um, you know, equipment and, and, and all metal or, or wood. It's, it's very, very heavy and it's very expensive. So 67% of that shipping cost has to be covered by the host club. Um, also in these guidelines, there's a list of, of officials. You know, if you're going to put on a convention, there's a, there's a bunch of duties and official titles beginning with the uh, general chairperson. And uh, I'm going to dedicate that little part tonight uh, in describing that role because, well, Bryony interviewed one of those tonight. That's uh, Gordon Williams, who is the chairperson for the upcoming convention in Louisville. Um, The ARBA guidelines say the general chairperson is recommended to be an individual who possesses leadership ability, experience in organizing major rapid events, and ability to interact with community business leaders. It's also recommended that this person who has attended previous conventions or it is recommended that a person who has attended previous conventions be appointed to this position. Um, and in-depth knowledge of the ARBA show rules would be an asset to this individual. So this is not something that just anyone can kind of pull off and be a chairperson of. It's it, it's great if you have, are also maybe put on conventions in the past or been part of one um, in this in this committee. And the committee also exists of open show superintendent, general show secretary, treasurer, catalog chairperson, advertising chairperson, youth show superintendent, youth show secretary, um, and, and on and on. If you've put on a convention, you know, there's lots of subcategories too that go into this. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of money you've got to put up front. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, we talked about headquarters hotels tonight, which we uh, know is the crown plaza this year in Louisville. But when you put together a convention bid, you have to outline, okay, where is that hotel going to be? That's going to serve as our headquarters. And in advance, that group has to secure with that headquarters hotel that, Hey, you've got this number of rooms. We're going to put a block on that. And these number of rooms will be available to um, be reserved by our exhibitors. That's also a big undertaking and a reason why it's done years in advance, because let's face it, Kentucky state fairgrounds puts on a lot of events throughout the year. And they may have something going on that weekend that, you know, uh, consumes all of the hotel rooms. So these things have to be thought about and, and worked out ahead of time with the, uh, you know, the, the, the local industry. And that's, uh, well, in this case, the, local hotels. Um, there also has to be a certain number of rooms booked for ARBA uh, directors. So probably didn't know that, but 20 rooms every year have to be dedicated to uh, some officials like our, our ARBA board and other officials like uh, standards committee. And there are others. I, I'm not going to mention them because I don't know, but 20 of those rooms have to be dedicated just to ARBA officials. Um, and then of course there's the catalog, which we've put out a bunch of conventions out here, like uh, summer or late spring is catalog season and proofing that catalog is such an amount of work. I do not, I don't wish that job on anyone and we're going to be doing it next year. So when I'm pulling my hair out in May and June, you'll know what I'll be doing. I'll be proofing the catalog coming out for the Reno convention. Um, if you're an Airbnb convention host, you've got to have 
not only uh, an out outline of where your coops and and things like that are going to be in your judging, but also meeting rooms. Because let's face it, there's 50 breeds of rabbits now. There are a lot of um, national specialty clubs, and every one of those has to have an annual meeting. And the host club has to think about that and have an outline for where the Dwarf Papillon Club, the new club, where they're going to have their meeting and what time and what room it's going to be in. Also, ARBA board meetings, um, ARBA general membership meetings, specialty club meetings, judges conferences. Um, and then one that Brian and I love to go to, that's the ARBA banquet. And I hope and we encourage everyone to go to this one later in Louisville. You know, it's got, where are you going to have this banquet facility for hundreds of people to come and eat at an affordable price? And by the way, what are you going to serve? Like that is all outlined more than two years in advance of an ARBA convention, if you're planning on putting one on. Also, youth banquet, which is actually more attended than most open banquets. That has to be thought about. Where is it going to be? How many people are going to be there? And how many plates are we going to have to serve? So lots and lots of stuff. I could go on and on and on. There's actually like 10 more pages more than I just, I just summarized. But if you're interested in hosting an ARBA convention, it's a lot of work. But we certainly need more people that are dedicated to take that job on because... Um, well, it's, you know, it's not for everyone, but you can check out those guidelines again on the ARB website, go to ARB.net, go to member resources, member membership resources, pull down the tab, which says shows. And then again, uh, the last step is to click on ARB convention guidelines, and you can read all about how to put on a convention. But if you ever wondered why, you know, the ARB convention isn't at Disneyland or maybe um, on the strip in Las Vegas, it's because a lot more has to go into considering than just a really cool venue or a really cool place to, to party and hang out and go on vacation with your friends. It's so much bigger than that. So, Bryony, uh, <laughs> how do you feel about all that? Well, um, like you, I've been part of a couple of conventions, both of the Wichita shows. I think actually the last Wichita show in 2012 was the last convention that had some restrictions on entries. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult to find a venue is there's just not that many venues with an affordable price that can hold, you know, 20,000 plus animals. I know our cap was 21,000. Original entries exceeded that. Um, so what we ended up doing was we allowed exhibitors to voluntarily reduce your entry. Say, you know, you sold a rabbit or something started to mold and you decided you didn't want to take it um, to convention. It does. Yeah. I mean, you you enter, you know, far in advance and then you realize, oh, no, um, this rabbit got in a fight with its neighbor or, you know, it, it's blowing code. I don't want to bother to bring it to convention. So we allowed people to voluntarily reduce, get a refund for their entry fee. And that brought us down into where we needed to be. But unlike so many other national shows, any ARBA member can enter any rabbit at the ARBA convention. There's no qualification other than being a member. Um, so the entry can be huge. And I know we're anticipating a good-sized one in Louisville this year. It is pretty central, really anything within um, about a day's drive of District 8 are our biggest shows. I think actually the 2008 convention in Louisville may have helped, may still hold the record for the number of animals crossing the table. I think, I think 2005 right. in Indy had the most entries, but when it all came down to it, the most animals crossed the table in 2008 in Louisville. And with having missed convention last year, I think a lot of people are going to be there. I think it could be a record-breaking show. Let's hope so. Yes. Yes. We can't wait. It's going to be awesome. And, you know, by the way, all these jobs that we just outlined in this um, 
you know, official rules, guidelines, and recommendations for putting on a convention. These were all volunteers. And Brian and I love to talk about volunteers because this association is run by a bunch of people that don't do it for the money. And um, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight with an idea that Brian came up with to kind of inspire um, thanking these people behind the scenes, not just of conventions, but in everyday shows and uh, across our industry. So, hey, Brian, you want to jump into that? Sure. We have decided to issue a challenge to you, our listeners, and the ARBA membership. We're going to call it the Best in Show Mentorship Recognition Challenge. And the idea of this is our goal is by the end of this year, we want to see at least one person from each of the nine ARBA districts honored with a new Distinguished Service Award. We know that there are all sorts of people out there who are making a difference in this hobby, who are showing mentorship and leadership. And we want those people to be recognized. Um, again, you can go to the ARBA website. There's printable forms. You scroll down to printable award forms, and you'll find the form there. It lists some criteria. And it sounds a little bit intimidating when you read those criteria. But that's kind of an idea. The nominees do not have to meet all of those. In fact, pretty much anyone you can think of that would be deserving of such an award has already probably met four of these. They're a member in good standing. They've been a member for 10 years. They've contributed time, effort, or finances to the hobby. You know, this is someone who works tirelessly to put on shows, either nationally or in just in your area, or they've performed other outstanding services. And there are a list of other things there, too, that qualifies someone for consideration. Um, but we'd like to see this happen. We'd like to see more of us honor our mentors. Most of these people will tell you that they don't do it for the recognition, but it's important to say thank you to let the rest of these association members see what these people are doing and learn from this example. So I know everyone hears things like this and they think, oh, it would be really cool if someone did that. You know what? Someone is you. Someone doesn't do anything. Um, so we want each of you to think about someone you can nominate. And these nominations can come from a person. They can come from a club. So you can get together with some club members, maybe in your local club, your national specialty club. And let's get at least one person in every district honored with a new Distinguished Service Award. Um, Alan, I know you've been part of one of these before. I actually haven't, so I'm going to do one myself. Um, and I'm not telling you what district is from <laughs> because you all are still on the hook. Um, <laughs> but but that's our goal. We want to see by the end of 2021, at least one person from each district honored with a new Distinguished, distinguished Service Award. Such a great challenge. And there's no better time to do it because let's face it, we're not going to as many shows as we as we were. There's a lot of downtime. We're home on weekends more than we ever were. You know, this is a great time to put together uh, some brain power and, and and get to paper and, and and write up one of these DSA, Distinguished Service Award um, applications. And as I offered last week, uh, I have a template that that I use when I've nominated some people in the past. And I'm happy to share that with with anyone that, that writes to us, podcast best in show at gmail.com. Uh, so you can take a look at that and then, hey, you can copy as much of it as, as you want. So you can easily uh, make this and, uh, and, and nominate someone in your area. Yeah. And summer's coming up. We're all going to have a little bit of time. This will take a little bit of research. I've, um, I've kind of already picked my person and I'm going to have to ask around. Um, one of the questions on there asks how long this person has been an ARBA member. I'm really not sure. So what I'm going to do is send a message to the office and say, I'm nominating so-and-so for a distinguished service award. Can you tell me when they joined the ARBA? Super and, easy. Yeah. They'll be happy to do that. You know, you can ask maybe 
show partners for some information. Maybe you, if you know family members or people that are part of other clubs that they're involved in. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of work, but I think it's really important to do this. It's very meaningful for people and it's meaningful for the rest of the association to see this recognition happen. And definitely do it covertly. Like, don't tell the person that you're nominating. You know, go behind go behind their back a little bit and and do some research because then when you go to present that award, uh, it can be done in total surprise and at least usually lots of tears and and surprise. So it's really fun to do. Yeah, um, these are often given by district directors, um, usually at shows or some event that the nominee um, shows up at and is a part of. So that'll be fun and interesting, too, to see these surprises happen. Um, and each time one of these is given out, we will happily feature the nominee or oh, yeah. the recipient on our show and tell everyone a little bit about this new award recipient. Heck, yeah. Definitely going to highlight them on the episode. And you get featured oftentimes in Domestic Rabbits magazine. And you get a really cool plaque, too, that you can hang on your wall. And uh, or that person gets to hang on their wall as a, as a testament to everything they've done, as you said, to give back to uh, to this association and to this industry, which we're also indebted to. And as you will notice, the new membership handbook is coming out. It's already on the ARB app. It will be um, mailed to your home. There's a list of current Distinguished Service Award recipients, and whoever you nominate will be added to that list. It will be perpetually um, listed as part of this publication. And if you're not sure, you know, what sort of person might be good for this, just flip through that list. I'm sure you know somebody on there and, you know, it might get your brain jogging a little bit. Yeah. If you read that list, oftentimes I read the list and I think about all the people that are on there and then think about all the people that aren't on there. I'm like, how are these people not, how do they not have a DSA? Like all the things that they do for, for the ARB in this industry. So definitely take a look at that list in the handbook. That's a great idea. So to end our episode today, um, this is actually a quote from that May-June 2008 DR from Dr. Hayhouse report, and I like that it relates both to convention participants and hosts. And it says, the healthiest competition occurs when average people win by putting above average effort by Colin Powell. I love it. It's so appropriate. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Best in Show, episode 15. I cannot believe we're at episode 15 already. Um, make sure, again, to check us out on Facebook. Our hub is The Rabbitry, so search for The Rabbitry on Facebook, where you can find links to all of our current and previous episodes of Best in Show. And again, if you have questions, comments, uh, please email us, podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. So until next time, everyone, don't forget to talk rabbits and talk cavies. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.